0: Hello everybody and welcome once again to Dirty Sexy History and Joyeux 14 juillet tout le monde. That's right everybody, I'm dusting off my high school French once again because today is Bastille Day. Not just a day in July your francophile friends post about on Instagram for reasons you don't fully understand. Today is the national day of France which commemorates the storming of the Bastille on July 14th of 1789. It's a bit like the 4th of July, and like the 4th of July, there was a lot of gunpowder involved. It's a fun holiday and a great time to celebrate with mimosas and crepes. Any excuse, as far as I'm concerned. But before you light up those sparklers and put on the Edith Piaf, we're going to talk about the historical origins of the holiday and its troubling parallels to today. I should warn you, I'm going to get a little dark here, but it's not my aim to make you feel hopeless. That's the last thing I want rather i want you to feel empowered but to fight a monster first you got to identify it and this particular beast has been around for a very long time it was out of control in 18th century france and it's back again today perpetually gnawing on the livers of the working classes like sisyphus's eagle only our livers don't regenerate i'm talking of course about the ever-growing chasm of income inequality oh yes This gets a little more political than you might be used to hearing from us. Don't you just love how every time you bring up a social issue that shouldn't be controversial, like vaccines are good and women are people, you get accused of being political? Honey, everything is political, and you can't both sides this. See, one side has a vested interest in keeping things exactly as they are, and the other has the foresight to trace current events to their logical conclusion, which, by the way is fucking terrifying. Why? Well, on a personal level, if your basic needs aren't being met, that's bad. If the basic needs of an entire society aren't being met or are in danger of being taken away at a moment's notice, from a historical perspective, that's extremely fucking bad. Poverty, homelessness, and a system it takes an act of God to win are not things that you can solve by taking on an extra job or working some hanacolic magic on your bootstraps. Does anybody have bootstraps anymore? Don't answer that. These things won't be solved by the corporations that created the problem suddenly growing a conscience. They're not broken. They were designed to put profit over people to benefit their shareholders, so they're working exactly as they're supposed to. But what about their CEOs? The billionaires who run the businesses and tell the politicians how to vote? They're not worried about you! Bezos, Branson, and Musk could solve climate change, hunger, and homelessness, but instead they're gearing up for a pissing contest on the moon. Now I'm not saying they're compensating for anything, but you know what's cheaper and more effective than spending literal billions subsidized by taxpayer money to build a giant phallus that has to be bigger and better than the other guys? Fucking therapy, that's what! Now, look, I'm not here to tell anybody how to spend their money. I myself have been known to shell out tens of dollars on OPI nail polish and brand name maxi pads at CVS. What can I say? I'm a lady of wealth and taste. But you'd better believe that if I had the billions these chuckleheads are flushing down the zero-gravity toilet, I'd put it to you solving some actual problems like Mackenzie Scott has, rather than entering a space race to see who gets to be the real-world Lex Luthor." Okay, I know I'm picking on these guys, and it's not entirely fair. There are plenty of other billionaires using their money for evil in other, more directly harmful ways, whether that's buying politicians and armies of lobbyists to hamstring Medicare for All to ensure that medical debt continues to ruin lives so you can buy a new support yacht for your other, bigger yacht, or buying up huge pieces of protected landscape and destroying it so you can't see your neighbors from your fortress of solitude in Hawaii. There are lots of ways the ultra-wealthy can screw over everybody else, and their inventiveness in protecting their own self-interest never ceases to amaze. But this isn't new. Throughout history, cycles of exploitation and income inequality have played out over and over and over again. But the funny thing is, and by funny, I mean equal parts maddening and terrifying... Although people see it coming every time, no one ever seems to hit the brakes before society smashes into a wall. People go hungry, they lose their homes and their health care. How do you fix that? Well, you don't do it with a sub-poverty level minimum wage. You don't do it with predatory loans or overpriced health care tied to jobs that pay below subsistence in all 50 states. And you certainly don't do it by attacking protesters, as we'll see here in a minute. So what we have right now in this country is not sustainable on a number of levels. Depression is on the rise, and is it any wonder... Social mobility is difficult, if not impossible, in a system designed to keep you as a serf, beholden to billionaires for poverty wages, defending them and voting for politicians who will charge you for their tax cuts, all because you hope that someday, if you just work hard enough, you'll be pissing beside them on the moon. But in this country, you're more likely to be pissing yourself at work because you're not allowed to take breaks. The system wasn't designed for you. It was designed to break you emotionally physically and financially unless we break it first you've heard of course that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it this is a favorite saying of mine mostly because i'm acutely aware on the daily just how often this happens all around me but just because things tend to play out how you'd expect doesn't mean they have to we can stop that cycle take a breath, and learn from history, so we can hopefully stop the cycle in its tracks before it plows through a guardrail. Where do we start? Well, since today is Bastille Day, we're going back to France in 1789 to look at the start of the French Revolution. But first, we're going to take it over to Dr. John to explain what the heck a genie coefficient is and why it matters.
1: Genie Coefficient Lengthy disclaimer I am primarily a cultural historian which means I like going over to the past's house reading its books, listening to its music watching its movies, staring at the posters on its walls checking its copy of the paper for funny classified ads and if I can get it to teach me one of its dirty limericks while I'm there, that's a win I love all of you so much that this week, instead, I've been reading up on economic history and academic journals written by statisticians. I usually subscribe to the notion that statistics can be used to prove anything and should be treated with caution. Few arguments prove this as convincingly as the life of the statistician who came up with the genie coefficient. One cararo genie. Gini was a fascist who worked closely with Mussolini, and then, when that didn't work out so well, decided it would be best if the US just conquered the whole world in the name of world peace. He was a sort of more optimistic Italian Spengler. Despite the Gini coefficient's cautionary origins, some statistical trends are just too overwhelming to ignore and have, of course, been calculated by persons much cleverer than I, and more cautious in their use of statistics than Gini himself seems to have been. So what is the Gini coefficient? Put simply, it is a means of measuring the level of wealth inequality within a country. If the value is zero, then there is perfect income equality. The closer the value gets to one, the more wealth is concentrated in fewer hands. So why is it important on Bastille Day? As you're about to hear from Jess, income inequality was great in France in 1789. Its Gini coefficient has been measured at 0.59. Now remember that's on a scale where zero is complete equality and one is that one guy has everything. The lowest 40% of earners held 14% of the wealth, and the top 20% of earners held 60% of the wealth. So what are the cycles that we're deemed to repeat if we don't break? Well, aside from a brief respite in the late 1990s, global income inequality has been increasing since industrialization. By 2016, the United Nations stated that the wealthiest 1% earned 20% of all income around the world, and that this was more than 20% in some of the huge economies such as Brazil, India, Russia, and the United States. The Gini coefficient for the US in 2018 was 0.49, lower than pre-revolutionary France is 059 but the proportion of the wealth held by the very poorest is even lower in the contemporary U.S. than it was in feudal absolutist France. In 2018, the lowest 40% of earners in the U.S. held 11.4% of the wealth, compared to 14% for the French peasantry. This year, it is believed that the top 1% of earners control 16 times the wealth of the bottom 50%. And this is being recorded in 2021. Using the Gini coefficient in conjunction with data from political surveys and a wide range of personal information drawn from around 130,000 people living in 61 different countries between 1976 and 1995, Robert McCulloch has shown there to be a strong correlation between the proportion of people in a country who want a revolution and the relative level of income inequality in that country. However, to quote McCulloch, high levels of inequality lead to high levels of revolutionary support only when there is no government response. And McCulloch was then able to show that governments can pay off potential revolutionaries by increasing their benefits. While the rest of us practice our knitting, the ruling class can avoid Madame Guillotine by striving for greater income equality and failing that by intervening in the economy to correct any imbalance.
0: And we're back. When the French Revolution features in art and literature, the bias tends to favor the royalty over the common people. The specter of Madame Guillotine casts a shadow that can still be seen today, and in our sympathy for the tragic figures who lost their lives, the grievances and casualties of the public are routinely overlooked. It was not a misunderstanding about cake that led to the French Revolution. When the Bastille was stormed on July 14th of 1789, it had been coming for a very long time. In 18th century France, the social classes were divided into three estates. The first estate was the Roman Catholic clergy, the second estate was the king and the nobility, and the third estate was everybody else. Class was determined entirely by birth, and Louis XVI was an absolute monarch. You might remember Absolute Monarchy from school. Not just a criminally overlooked name for a flavor of top-shelf vodka, an Absolute Monarch is an autocrat who can do basically whatever they want with no real repercussions because they're in charge. This isn't actually what we have in the U.S., despite what the last four years might suggest. The King of France ruled by divine right, which is basically the theory that whoever is in charge is in that position because God put them there. I mean, sure, if you believe in fate, everyone is where they are because God put them there. And for a long time, people believed this because the church backed it up and it made more sense than accepting that some asshole raised to be a sociopath gets a crown because he was lucky enough to be born into the right family at the right time. A family no better or worse than anyone else's, except for the fact that they can trace their lineage back hundreds of years. Of course they can. It's a complete circle. Needless to say, telling someone they have absolute power over the lives and livelihoods of millions of people, because God said so, is not, generally speaking, a good way to keep people level-headed and humble. We see it playing out in politics today. The theme of divine right pops up again and again in GOP politics, like the world's most disingenuous game of whack-a-mole. But, word to the wise, if God is telling you to wring every last penny out of the poor so you can buy another private jet, I'm sorry to inform you that that's not God you're speaking to. Well, God wasn't speaking to the French nobility either. By 1789, there were 30 million people living in France. France was still a feudal society, so the 80% of the population living off the land in rural areas had to rent it from the nobility, the wealthy landowners, with no hope of ever owning any land of their own. They were taxed heavily, and most of them lived below subsistence. Sound familiar? As historian W.H. Lewis so beautifully put it, if the devil himself had been given a free hand to plan the ruin of France, he could not have invented any scheme more likely to achieve that object than the system of taxation in vogue- a system which would seem to have been designed with the sole object of ensuring a minimum return to the king at a maximum price to his subjects with the heaviest share falling on the poorest section of the population. A schoolteacher on average wages could expect to be taxed at a rate of about twenty times higher than the richest man in the country. Just kidding. That's now, and that man is Jeff Bezos. But that did actually apply to 18th century France as well. You see, the nobility, the clergy, and government officials were entirely tax-exempt. And this is no small number of people. More than a century earlier, in 1664, Louis XIV's Minister of Finance, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, reported that there were 46,000 people working in departments of finance and justice alone, and 40,000 of those were basically redundant. They had purchased those positions as a front to avoid paying tax. Only the third estate paid taxes, so the poorest 97% of the country supported the top 3%. Now it's 99% versus 1, but who's counting? (laughs) Uh. The taxes the peasants paid were not used for their benefit, and the fees could change arbitrarily from year to year. Peasants who were seen to be existing above subsistence level typically had their taxes doubled. The fees were as high as the government thought they could get away with without inspiring open revolt. See? They knew it was a danger. This didn't come out of the blue. The money collected from the peasants was kept by the nobility, with the exception of the salt tax, which was given to the king. In one of the most glaring examples of the failure of trickle-down economics, the nobility frittered away fortunes, putting on a good show at Versailles to win the favor of a fickle king, while the peasants who made this extravagance possible were literally dying in the fields outside the window. Strapped for cash after assisting the American War of Independence, Louis attempted to compel his nobility to relinquish more of the taxes they collected to the government. As expected, the wealthy refused. On July 7, 1788, Parliament also refused the king's request for a loan to cover the deficit, and they were all fired. The parliamentarians of Grenoble rejected the king's dismissal and a protest broke out. Soldiers were sent to break up the crowd, but the parliamentarians met them with projectiles and doubled down by refusing to pay taxes to the king and calling on the other regions to do likewise. Out of options, the king called the estates general meeting, a gathering of representatives from the three estates at Versailles. Although the third estate represented 97% of the country, the balance of power was disproportionately weighed against them, and they could easily be outvoted on any issue by the first and second estates. This is kind of like how the Electoral College works now. Taking this imbalance into consideration, the third estate asked for twice the representation, and this request was granted by Jacques Necker, the Controller General of Finances. This made Necker particularly popular among the people of the Third Estate, not that he needed any help. As the king's finance minister, he had made the country's budget public in 1781, which had never really been done before. The public appreciated his transparency, but the king did not. The king only reluctantly brought Necker back in 1788, setting into motion the events that would eventually lead to his own execution. Now, the third estate's hopes of a fair hearing were dashed when they found out that their extra representation would count for nothing. Although they had twice the representation as promised, the third estate would still receive only one vote. The gesture had been an empty one. When Necker had the audacity to suggest that the clergy and nobility should also pay taxes, the nobility turned against the king. The third estate was represented at this meeting by Robespierre, a young lawyer devoted to helping the millions of poor. Having lost faith with the political process, Robespierre and prominent members of the third estate established themselves as the National Assembly and called on representatives from the two other estates to join them for a meeting of their own. They did, and together they decided to write a constitution for the people of France. The king was not invited. The National Assembly became the National Constituent Assembly on July 9th of 1789. Three days later, the king fired Jacques Necker. The king not only replaced him with the militaristic Baron de Breteuil, but he also sent 20,000 troops to march on Paris to attack the protesters. The news was delivered firsthand by reporter Camille Desmoulins, who had rushed back to Paris from Versailles to address the crowds at the Palais Royal? Unfortunately for Louis, Necker was very popular among the third estate. He had listened to them when no one else would, and he had been the one to propose taxing the wealthy. Even the Paris troops demanded his reinstatement, and they refused to fire on the protesters. Tensions were already high. Then Desmoulins climbed onto a table outside a café and addressed the crowd. Citizens, Necker has been driven out. After such an act they will dare anything, and may be preparing a massacre of patriots this very night. To arms, to arms, the famous police are here. Well, let them look at me. I call on my brothers to take liberty. The great are only great because we are on our knees. Let us rise. And did they ever. Crowds marched on the Abbey prison to free several guardsmen who had been jailed for refusing to fire on the protesters. Theater performances were canceled out of respect for the uprising. A People's Militia was formed with more than 13,000 volunteers just to start, and its numbers soon swelled to 50,000. As terrifying as 50,000 angry people must have been, they wouldn't have been much of a chance against the king's army without weapons. We take for granted the availability of weapons today, but they were much harder to come by in 18th century France. Still, they found them. Crowds marched on the Hôtel des Invalides and seized 30,000 muskets. Desperate, they even took items from the museum in the Place Louis XV, including a crossbow that had previously belonged to Henri IV. The Bastille mainly held political prisoners without the benefit of a trial, so it had become a glaring symbol of the tyranny of the Bourbon monarchs in the heart of the poor district of Saint-Antoine. It was a natural target. It also held a truly spectacular amount of gunpowder. The Bastille was seen as impenetrable, and hundreds of barrels of gunpowder had recently been moved behind the drawbridge for safekeeping. Early in the morning of July 14th, a crowd of a thousand tradesmen approached the gates and demanded the gunpowder. Delaunay, the prison governor, invited a group of them inside for breakfast to kill time while reports of approaching royalist troops spread throughout the city. The breakfast went on for three hours, while the rest of the crowd waited outside, until one man managed to climb onto the drawbridge from the roof of a neighboring shop and cut its chains, allowing the protesters to cross into the outer courtyard. Breakfast negotiations were obviously cut short. As alarming as this must have been, Delaunay overreacted in the worst possible way, and he fired a cannon into the crowd. Not a t-shirt cannon. Not sound or water. We're talking about actual cannonballs fired into a crowd of civilians. As we found this year, people can defend all kinds of heinous actions toward protesters, but firing cannon was crossing a line even then. Horrified, guards rushed to the Bastille to defend the protesters, and a Swiss guard inside the Bastille handed a set of keys to a protester through a hole in the wall. Demonstrators passed through the second drawbridge and used a plank to cross the moat on the other side. Somehow they made it through. Six Bastille guards were killed, as well as a staggering 94 protesters, and Delaunay's head was cut off by an unemployed cook who had presumably seen the carnage with the cannon. All seven prisoners of the Bastille were freed. The Marquis de Sade would have been one of them, but he had actually been moved to another location the week before. Upon hearing of the event, Governor Morris wrote from Versailles, "'A person came in and announced the taking of the Bastille, the governor of which is beheaded, and a crowd carries his head in triumph through the city. Yesterday it was the fashion in Versailles not to believe that there were any disturbances in Paris. I presume that this day's transactions will induce a conviction that all is not perfectly quiet.'" I should say not. Following the events of July 14th, the king formally recognized the National Assembly and reinstated Jacques Necker, who got to work on tax reform. Before long, he also fell out of favor and was forced to flee to Geneva. Lafayette was appointed head of the newly formed National Guard, consisting of the police and army, and the Paris Commune was formed. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen was issued on August 26th. The medieval system of feudalism was abolished August 4th, and the Bastille was demolished by February of 1790. The abolition of the monarchy followed in 1792, and Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were executed for treason in 1793. Camille Desmoulins, the journalist who had once inspired the crowd from the top of a café table, published radical pamphlets throughout the early years of the Revolution. Horrified as he saw his impassioned words get people killed, he experienced a change of heart and pleaded with Robespierre, once a friend and schoolmate, to adopt a policy of clemency. He wrote to him, "'My dear Robespierre, my old school friend, remember the lessons of history and philosophy.' Love is stronger, more lasting than fear. It was more than reasonable, but by then, things had gone too far. Desmoulins was seen as a traitor, and he and his wife were executed in 1794. As you can see, there weren't really any clear winners here. The French Revolution is an incredibly complicated subject with a lot written about it that goes into far more detail far better than I can on a 20-minute podcast. But there are some takeaways here. As we look back on the Revolution, the violence of it often overshadows what was good about it. As historian Rebecca Spang summarizes, in just a few years, it decriminalized heresy, blasphemy, and witchcraft replaced a well-established monarchy with a republic based on universal male suffrage, and it introduced no-fault divorce and easy adoption. For a time, it defined employment, education, and subsistence as basic human rights, something that we could certainly learn from today. I think we can all agree with Camille de Moulin that clemency is the ideal and that love is stronger than fear. When we act out of love for each other, trying to lift each other up and enact policy to help our neighbors rather than punish them or hold them back, we can create meaningful change that works for all of us, not just a handful of billionaires with more money than cents. Peaceful protest works, even if you can't see the results right away, and positive change happens one person at a time. Don't let the news get you down. If history has taught us anything, it's that wealth inequality on this kind of scale can't last forever. Eventually, that cycle has to break. One way that happens is through revolution. And another thing that's done that historically is plague. Wow, did I just find a silver lining to coronavirus? And you thought I wasn't an optimist. This week's episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you by months of news addiction and barely suppressed rage at the current state of the world, as well as our beautiful patrons on Patreon. The fabulous, the legendary Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Michelle Dunbar, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, and Jessica Miller. Thank you all so very much, and I promise I'll do something lighter next week. You know probably. (laughs) If you would like to support this show, check us out on Patreon.com slash Dirty Sexy History. And of course, rate, review and subscribe because it really helps us out. As always, you can find us through our website at DirtySexyHistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, where we will post the photos for this week's show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast written, produced, etc, 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 by Jessica Kale and John Jenkins. Our sources today include W.H. Lewis, The Splendid Century, Life in the France of Louis XIV. Robert McCullough, Income Inequality and the Taste for Revolution, The Journal of Law and Economics, The University of Chicago Press. Christian Morrison and Wayne Snyder, The Income Inequality of France in Historical Perspective, Cambridge University Press. Walter Scheidel, The Only Thing Historically That's Curbed Inequality, Catastrophe, The Atlantic. Rebecca L. Spang, The Revolution Is Underway Already, The Atlantic. Mark Steele, Vive la Révolution, A Stand-Up History of the French Revolution. Thank you again for listening, and uh, I apologize for my dodgy pronunciations this week. I hope you enjoyed. And remember that although this episode was a little grim, today is Bastille Day, and uh, I hope you find some time to uh, celebrate in your own way. See you guys next week.